Saw number 23 has been asked that we mark that. Delighted to do that and so good to see each and every one here this evening as we've come together to, as those who are interested in serving and worshiping God in the way He's commanded. Along with what Brother Kale echoed earlier, I would remind each of us certainly about the time change coming this coming Saturday. So don't forget for next Sunday, of course, we'll try to remember to mention this again Wednesday to make sure to set the clocks back an hour again next Saturday night. And also for the ladies, please don't forget the, the ladies' Bible class meeting day after tomorrow, Tuesday, 6 p.m. here at the building, in which you'll get to reflect on a number of features about the authority inherited in Jesus Christ. For tonight, we go back to the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, the spotlight tonight, chapter number 9. In our study throughout that book over the last uh, several weeks, we have been reminded of a number of very basic truths. You and I might reckon them along with wisdom. And tonight, I might say that likely as I describe with you some of the features of this chapter, it'll not be any new revelations, but it will be a reminder of what basic wisdom is all about. These opening remarks on this next slide are ones which remind us the question of this book is life worth living. And one by one, as these chapters have passed before us, we've been reminded that although on occasion under the sun leads one to suppose maybe the answer to be no, Solomon seems to always return to the reminder that one must look above what's under the sun if you're going to find the meaning of life. The meaning of life will never be found what's under the sun. May you and I remember that simple little nugget of truth from this, from this book of the Bible. In fact, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, wisdom is the focus of chapters 7 through 10 particularly, and so tonight we come to chapter 9. What does wisdom lead us to appreciate in this chapter? Would you like to be wise? Would you like to be wise? If you and I would, then the things of this chapter will need to be appreciated by us, and so... Let's give some thought to verses 1 through 3. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. For all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before him. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live." And after that, they go to the dead. To start the chapter that way, it sounds a bit somber, doesn't it? It sounds a bit sober. It sounds a bit as if it's almost depressing. But would you notice again the thrust, the focus presented to you and to me, that which is under the sun. Let's develop it like this. Remember, this comes about from chapter 8, verse 17. That particular verse again reads, Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. There are things before you and me 
what we observe in our life and even what we experience. And there are times when that which befalls you and I may be beyond what you and I would wish to be able to explain. Three things immediately in this chapter seemingly fall in that category. At least we would wish that we could explain it in a somewhat more profound fashion. And the fact begins like this. The same exact things happen to the godly in many ways as also happen to the ungodly. Those that try their best to serve the Lord often experience the very same kind of things that those who have no interest in Jesus, no interest in the church, no interest in things divine. You and I can list so many things that happen to both of them. Sometimes they both have good jobs and sometimes they both don't. Sometimes they both enjoy happiness and health and sometimes they both don't. Sometimes they enjoy great rewards in a number of ways and sometimes evil things befall both of them. Sometimes those events that characterize very sorrowful things. That man that's wicked may have his house broken into, but that godly person may have his house broken into as well. That man that's wicked may unfortunately have to endure a car wreck, but that person that's righteous might as well. We get the idea the same thing Solomon says in many ways happens to both of them. Now I would ask that we always keep this in mind. That description, as he himself says, it is under the sun. Once they die, the same thing's not happening. There's the difference. Once they die... That wicked man is not experiencing the same thing as the one that was righteous. Now, I would submit that as you and I read through that chapter, if we forget that, this seems confusing. In the rich man and Lazarus, a timeless example that those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous are not the same after this life. We would submit that in many ways, even in this life, there are grand differences. The righteous man's prayers are heard, but that can't be said of the other one. The righteous man has a powerful appearance before God, but the other one doesn't. But what we're saying in this passage is, under the sun there appears to be so many things the same. Solomon presented us this way. You may notice that very idea is sometimes used as a great stumbling block before people. Have you ever had someone to, in fact discuss with you like this look you people attend church services and you invest hours and hours out of every week you pray you meet at the church building you study the bible you claim to give your heartfelt interest in things you cannot see and this person might say i don't do any of that and i'm as well off as you are why should i do any of that that you do you and I have got to be mindful. How do we answer someone when they raise an issue like that? That's the very matter of Ecclesiastes 9. This person that says, look, the same things happened to me that happened to you. You're not the least bit better off than I am. In fact, my health may even be better than yours. Solomon used that in this particular passage to help us see that as long as you look only under the sun... Sure enough, you might be able to reason in such a way that you begin to question God. May you and I never make that mistake. May I suggest to you, 
that that very matter is in fact all throughout the Bible. And Jesus even used it in Matthew chapter 5. Isn't it still true that when you and I, in fact, have a garden, or when you and I have some particular field, that wicked man's garden may be just as good as mine? Isn't it true God sends the rain on both the just and the unjust? Matthew 5.45 In His infinite wisdom, God has orchestrated things then in such a way that we can't look on outward signs always and make immediate conclusions about things concerning this. Do you recall that there were those who tried to trip Jesus up that way? Do you remember the man born blind? In fact, they brought him before Jesus in John chapter 9 and said, Look, who sinned, him or his parents? You notice they were making a direct association. He is blind, and surely there's some reason for it. Either he sinned or his parents sinned or something. And Jesus responded in John 9, beginning in verse 3, like this, Nobody sinned like that. Rather, it's a means of showing the glory of God. May you and I then remember these circumstances that we see in our lives and those of others. They are a reminder that, point number one, like things can very easily occur to both the righteous and the ungodly. Point number two is this. Many of the same things can be exhibited at least by immediate appearance by both. Could I call to your attention the last part of verse number 2? I'm sorry, the last part of verse number 1. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Two extremes. On the one hand is love, on the other hand is hatred. And the inspired writer pointed out... It is difficult at times to discern the ultimate character of each one of them by simply what you observe. I've tried to list it like this. Isn't it true on occasion? Those that are wicked and even ungodly can exhibit what appears to be elements of love. They can help feed the hungry. They can help to house those that are destitute. They can provide necessary clothing to those that are without. Again, even an ungodly person can do that. But by the same token, you turn that over. Isn't it entirely true that sometimes those who claim to be godly can act in the most inhumane, hateful way? Solomon's point is, as you look at that which takes place before us, quite often it can be challenging to discern that which is motivated by love and that which is motivated by hate. I would suggest to you in the history of those who claim to follow God, that's happened many times. May you and I remember the Crusades that happened a bit over a thousand years ago now, but there were marauding groups of people who went over the countryside killing so very many. According to their own words, what motivated them? Love for God. And yet they acted in hate. Isn't that amazing? Today, there are many people who will wield a gun like the shootings we seemingly see so often, taking innocent lives. And quite often, they will claim a motivation attached to what they claim is religious zeal, hatred and love. That second point leads me to ask you to, to note this, this little interesting statement of verse 3. This is an evil among all things that are done, and watch the statement, under the sun. That there is one event in the wall, yea, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. 
you might want to underline that little phrase. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil. This world is under the clutches of Satan. We understand it well. By temptation, by allurements, by enticements, he is able to bring about the movement and the direction of individuals such that evil abounds that has been true since the Garden of Eden. May I suggest that statement? Quite often the Bible reminds us, didn't Jesus do it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. To that might we add Micah 7, verses 3 and 4. Their heart is like a briar. They do evil with both hands earnestly. Now, you and I get the point that the prophet was making. It wasn't enough they could do evil with one hand. They were doing evil with both hands. That was a description of the people. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 7, they got up early to corrupt all their doings. Those texts could be amplified many times over. The reminder is, day after day, tomorrow's going to have enough evil in it. Tuesday's going to have enough evil in it. May you and I be convicted of good, always thinking on what's noble and righteous and true and pure and lovely, Philippians 4, 8, and seeking to make our life a testimony of goodness. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. As you and I close that slide, may I say that this opening paragraph has brought us to understand the next section, verses 4 through 12. Let me again read that and listen to the sobering reality that, that Ecclesiastes brings before us. I would emphasize that verse 3 ended like this. After that, they go to the dead. He's going to talk about death. I realize for the world, death can often be a very unpleasant topic, but as Christians, it doesn't bother us so much. Listen to what he says. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know not that they shall... I'm sorry, for the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in the thing that's done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun." Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. 
I've entitled this one simply Life and Death. Our remarks will be somewhat brief, but I believe he's explained it well. See if you don't suppose the following to be the case. Death. There is a certainty coming to all of us. Now this presupposes the Lord delays His coming, but we know that death is a certain appointment. He uses that idea. He presents it here in such a way that again there's a degree of soberness to it. It begins in these kind of words. We understand its certainty from Hebrews 9.27. It's an appointment that we all have to keep. It doesn't matter how wise you are, you cannot escape it. It doesn't matter how healthy you may be, you cannot avoid it. It doesn't matter what kinds of things to which you turn your attention, you will not be able to escape it. Death is coming. It is in these passages now we note this. A living dog, better than a dead lion. Although the lion is regarded as the king of beasts, ferocious, strong, mighty, and that even the most innocent dog, when alive, is better than the lion. Why is that? For one thing, verse number four, there's hope when you're alive. The person right now who is apart from God, as long as that person's alive, there's still hope. He or she can come to their senses, make acknowledgement of the truth of God, responding to it properly, and obtain within themselves the hope, the hope. But you see, once you die, that hope's gone. You can't respond to the Lord anymore. You can't do anything to change one moment of anything you did in this life. You can't be forgiven at that point. You cannot bring about the elements in the matter of making yourself right. Don't you know that rich man would have loved one additional opportunity in Luke 16? And he didn't have it. Notice again, then verse 4, there's hope as long as you're alive. Verse 5, you and I had a sermon on that about a year ago. We laid emphasis on this statement. The living know that they shall die. Again, we all know that. As if the Bible wasn't a testimony to it, common observation leads us to know it. But verse 5 goes on to say, The dead know not anything. Be careful in that again. That's an assertion of attachment to under the sun. You and I know well, even when we die, we do know some things the rich man did. He knew he was in torment, and he knew he had no opportunity, therefore in need of salvation, he couldn't get it. He knew some things. All Solomon is saying here is once you die, your opportunity to appreciate responding to that knowledge is no longer available. For that reason, verse number 5 ends, neither have they any more reward for the memory of them's forgotten. When you and I depart this life, isn't it true that it doesn't take long, in most cases, for you and me to be forgotten? Everything we love, everything we hate, it is forgotten. That next generation goes on without us. They have their own concerns, they have their own needs in life, and you and I are just a distant memory. That's just the way it is. That's echoed in verse number 6. What you and I love, what you and I hate, what you and I have envied, what we have given our passion to pursue. That doesn't mean that next generation will pursue it. 
They may not love the same things you and I do. You and I have skills and talents, and that doesn't necessarily mean the next generation will appreciate those same things. Needless to say, verse 6 closes, Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that's done under the sun. Once you and I have crossed the stage of life and we have exited left, if you please, there's a new set of players entering the stage and you and I are not one of them. We're dead. May I say, we must live wisely while we're here. We pass this life one time. One. Hear me now, one. We can't replay it. We can't redo it. I know there are Eastern religions that talk about reincarnation, but that's nonsense. The Bible nowhere teaches it. We can't come back and go through it a second time. Oh, how important it is to be wise, to live with urgency, and to appreciate the wonderful message of Jesus in the here and now. For those reasons, you might notice verses 7 and following. Did you note this insistence of verse number 8? Let thy garments be white. Live honorably. Quite often, white is used as a symbol of purity. It's used as a symbol of innocence. And there the admonition is, live honorably. Don't live like a rascal. Don't live like a scoundrel. Don't live as close to evil as you can get. Try to live as nobly, as purely, as honorably as you can. Notice furthermore, verse number 9. Do appreciate with joy the blessings that you have. I know there are others more blessed than you and I are physically speaking. Maybe they have finer houses and clothing, and maybe they have a better job in some regards. But at least at this point, can't we appreciate the station that God does permit us to occupy? A station in which we have skills and capabilities and we're able to use them. And if you've got health and if you've got faithfulness, it certainly is much for which to be thankful. Needless to say, verse number 10 urges you and I to have an element of industriousness about us. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. With your might, always do your best. Notice he says, with your might, do your best. And what your hand finds to do, do it. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. Be industrious. That verse encourages us along that line, doesn't it? It closes like this. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you're going. May I be so blunt as to put it like this? When you and I depart this life, what work we could have done may, quite frankly, now go undone because others may not have the skill we do. They may not have the passion we do, and they may not have the particular viewpoint or perspective that we do. And certainly you and I can't do it once we have come to the grave. Doesn't that encourage us to think with soberness about our life in this flesh? Now may I say as we close that slide, there is an encouragement for you and I to think about verse 11. I like the phrase here, but I do want to be careful in how I present this. I returned and saw under the sun, Solomon, where have you seen this? Under the sun that the race is not to the swift. 
nor the battle to the strong. Neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. Now, I've tried to be very brief about some of that. Doesn't it bring us to appreciate some of this? Wouldn't it be fair to say most of the time in a foot race, the one that runs the fastest wins? Most of the time. Wouldn't it be fair to say that most of the time, the army that is prepared and stronger will win. Every now and then there are exceptions. I remember an Olympic race a few years ago. Perhaps you do as well. You know, the Olympic races in the summer come around every four years. And quite often these individuals who are so well prepared and seem clearly to be the fastest, something happens. The runner trips. He trips. He would have won if he hadn't tripped, but he trips and somebody else wins. That does happen every now and then. Solomon's point is that although most of the time the swift will win, every now and then it doesn't. So he's not encouraging you and I just to rely on chance or what the world may call luck. Most of the time the swift will win. The message is you and I have got to be prepared. When there are those occasions in life when the normal order is disrupted, may you and I be ready to take advantage of that if God permits us to do it. Notice what else occurs. Verse number 11, time and chance happens to them all. There is an occurrence of time and chance in life. You and I need to appreciate it will be a part of your life and mine. That does not mean we mustn't prepare. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be wise. What it means is that when those things happen, we've got to be ready to deal with them as the circumstances demand. Verse number 12 puts it like this, For, no, for man also knoweth not his time. You and I know and when that's tr certainly true when it comes to weather, don't we? You know that this coming April when tornado season starts, a tornado could come my way or yours. Weather can't predict that with exactness. Time and chance happens, but verse 12 says we don't know our time. Could that mean your death or mine? It could. May you and I live with wisdom. May we live knowing that tomorrow may not be ours. The chapter is going to close with these following verses, verses 13 to 18. Before I turn the slide, I'd like to read those verses. And then as we turn it, we will at least reflect on the gigantic and colossal and monumental truth of wisdom. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city, and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, 
but one sinner destroyeth much good. And now with that reading in place, I've entitled this one, Value. Wisdom is so valuable. What a precious and prized commodity. This last paragraph highlights that truth. Let's develop it perhaps like this. May I say that humanity quite often values the wrong things. Let me say that again. Humanity in our own human systems frequently value the wrong thing. Here's his example. There was a little city and a few people within it. Verse number 14 there came a great king against it, and this king built great bulwarks against that little city. Verse 15, in that little city was one poor wise man. And by his wisdom, by his ability, he delivered that city from the king that was coming against it. But notice what happened, verse 15. No man remembered that poor wise man, that, that poor man. Here was a man who delivered the city, and they forgot the man. Isn't it true that quite often when it comes to war, we build great monuments to those military generals, and we forget the wise person that may have been a critical element in delivering the entirety. It's quite often true we build great statues to military leaders, those who have been a part of bringing about much death, how often do we build monuments to those who have acted in wisdom and those who bring peace? Not years often. Isn't it odd? Isn't it ironic? Same kind of thing Solomon mentioned here on that same slide. Would you please note this statement of verse number 16? Wisdom is better than strength. Many nations may appear mighty, those military generals may appear strong and the army may seem great. And even in our life, there can appear to be such great strength on occasion in the lives of others with whom we, are, we have acquaintance. And yet the fact remains, wisdom is better than strength. It just is. Verse 16 closes by this, Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Quite frankly, those that have great insight and those who have great wisdom, their words are ignored because it's not what culture wants to hear. It's not what individuals like to hear because it devalues their own person and it elevates something that they don't particularly like. Wisdom's better than strength. I would ask you to think about several examples of this idea, at least in history. I think they're intriguing. Maybe you can perhaps appreciate in yourself other examples besides these. Verse number 16, verse 18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. I wish every nation would understand that. Wisdom not only is better than strength, it's better than weapons of war. Hear me now. That wording of verse 18 leads me to ask you to note these examples. In the ancient world, there was a, a city known as Syracuse. We know in America there's a Syracuse. It's in the state of New York. 
but I'm talking about ancient Syracuse, and it had a notable citizen named Archimedes. In physics, Archimedes is rather well known for some interesting things that he, he discovered, but historically the following is true. When the ancient Romans made their attack on Syracuse, Archimedes figured out way after way after way to defeat the Romans. And those Roman armies were far more prepared, far stronger, far better. And every time they came, by his ingenuity and by his inventions and by his devices, he delivered Syracuse every time. The Romans were never able to defeat Syracuse so long as Archimedes was alive. But shockingly, verse 18 ends by saying, "...one sinner destroys much good." The time came somebody in foolishness killed Archimedes. And after he was dead, Rome didn't have any trouble. One man was able to stave off all the efforts of those who came against it. I think that's an interesting example of how that wisdom, ingenuity, and the proper appreciation was able to defeat so many. Another example is this one, Alexander the Great. I've often made observation, as you and I have studied the book of Daniel in particular, how that he was able to, within a period of roughly ten years, conquer all that came against him. He was able to spread Greek civilization far and near. But there's an interesting record about his attack on the city called Lampsacus. Lampsacus. Maybe we're not too familiar with that city. But the following historical fact is of great interest. There was a gentleman named Anaximenes. Alexander knew that Anaximenes, when he came to meet him, was going to try to get him to save the city. History records that in their conversation. Alexander said, whatever you ask, I'm not going to give it. He knew that he was going to ask for something that would lead to him sparing that city. And so he said, whatever you ask for, I'm not going to give it to you. And Eximenes said, I want you to destroy the city. Think about it. He asked him to destroy it, and, but he had already promised, whatever you ask, I'm not going to give it. Alexander the Great spared the city. He kept his word. May I again say, one wise man asked for apparently the one thing required to save the city. With that said, let me close the lesson like this. And it's the closing statement of verse 18. Although we've cast a spotlight on the beauty of wisdom, let's turn that coin over. What about one sinner? Just one. I'm not talking about a congregation of sinners. What about just one? Isn't there biblical evidence and biblical record of the folly and the evil that one sinner can cause? Sunday morning, we've already discussed this at length. What about Achan? In Joshua chapters 6 and 7, one man brought about the defeat of Israel at Ai. One man. I would list Doeg in 1 Samuel 22. One more time, one man brought about the death of 85 priests. One man. What foolishness, what folly. 
doesn't that insist that you and I be wise? Let you and I not be the one that causes our family to suffer. The one that causes my children as they think back on the examples of their family, they remember the bad thing I've done. May you and I live wiser. This chapter has highlighted the power, the beauty, the majesty of wisdom. I'll close the lesson like this. Wisdom is the principal thing, Proverbs 4, verse 7. Therefore, with all thy getting, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. And that wisdom centers on Jesus Christ and the things of God, for the beginning of wisdom is God, Proverbs 1, verse 7. Tonight, as we have then highlighted about the middle of that slide, we know there are certain realities that happen to both the living I'm sorry, that happened to both the good and to the bad. But despite that fact, remember, that's only under the sun. As you look above that sun, if you please, it's so different. May you and I try to do what's right, following Jesus, for we know that when we leave this life, it'll be for our good, and we will enjoy that which is beyond the veil of these tears of this death. Tonight, if there's anyone that would wish to respond publicly to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd urge you to come, even as the Lord invites you. As an alien sinner, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. As a wayward child of God, though, come back to your first love. Appeal again to the wisdom of the Word of God, directing your life following Jesus. And as you do that, you too will be wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, aren't we taught there that the foolishness of God is wiser than men? No matter what wisdom you and I may think we have, we'll never outwise God. We'll never, in fact, rise above Him. He always knows what's best. He always does what's best. And tonight, if you need to do what's best, coming to Him in a public way, we would invite you to come now. For together we stand and sing.